Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower, every note, or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew, cruising, you can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at amfam.com. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Whether in-person or remote, open communication with your doctor is key to managing any condition, including heart failure. How have you been feeling? Um, I'm okay. Both are great options to continue having open conversations with your doctor about how you're feeling. I've had less energy. And when you speak openly with your doctor, they're better equipped to help. Visit heartfailuretalks.com to learn more. Ready for the interview, and if you get a cue, live on the laptop, watch what I'm gonna do. Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view. Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto. Real talk, pronto, doctor, DPHD, hit an intro. Hold up, wait, gotta be social, network, global, home for the locals. Gotta be social, network, global, home for the locals. We are here with one Mr. John Howe. John, thank you for being on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our chat. Me too, because this topic uh, or what I was told about what you speak about, I think is something I haven't really covered much in my podcast in all 400 plus episodes, but behavioral economics, retirement, we definitely have to talk about it. Okay, good. Well, let's start with uh, economics and then let's go to behavioral economics. Let's do it. And then we'll maybe we'll get to retirement too. So um, many of your listeners have probably taken an economics class of one sort or another. It um, doesn't often bring forth the fondest of memories, but um, what they got in a typical university economics class is what I'll call, um, what I'll call it's kind of standard economics. And one of the and, and standard economics simply seeks to understand the way the world works by building some, we'll call them models, but just kind of kind of mindsets about the way people behave in particular. And then trying to understand the world in the sense that these models may make predictions about how people behave and how maybe markets behave as well. So, and, and a lot of that standard economics, what I've called standard economics, assumes that people are perfectly rational. And that's, that's kind of, there's a lot of nuance to that, but basically it means that people uh, uh, rationally, uh, cleverly use all information, they use it correctly in evaluating their decisions about whether investing for retirement, which we'll touch on here shortly, or making any other kind of decision. And, and, um, and I don't mean to be completely, I don't wanna completely set aside uh, standard economics, because a lot of the predictions that it makes about the way the world works are basically true. Um, a common sense example is if we raise the price of something, generally people buy less of it, uh, which is certainly relevant in today's inflationary environment here in, in the U.S. Most definitely. And so, but behavioral economics, but what the, so that's economics. And um, in it, basically behavioral economics, though, brings the field of psychology and sometimes um, social psychology over into economics. So probably I, I would call him the grandfather of behavioral economics was a guy named Daniel, he's still alive, <laughs> Daniel Kahneman, um, who in 2002, he's a psychologist, but in 2002, he won the Nobel Prize in economics um, for his work showing that uh, primarily the work he was rewarded for showed that in making economic decisions, people don't always behave rationally as defined by the standard economic models. So behavioral economics in short, <laughs> this is a trouble talking to a professor, there's no short answer, but um, <laughs> anyway, in short is the intersection between psychology and economics. And so uh, again, not to set aside all of standard economics, but the question is, can, can we improve upon it by in some ways acknowledging the cognitive biases, the cognitive limitations that people have when they make economic or other kinds of decisions. Oh, it makes perfect sense, which makes me think about how has 
rational or the, the concept of rational behavior change in our current environment and how does that relate to economics and what we're seeing now? So the current environment, uh, by that you mean perhaps the economic environment? Sure, yes. Correct? Yeah, so you know, right now we have what for many people is unprecedented inflation. Um, I'm old enough that I remember periods of actually much higher inflation, but uh, many of your listeners and certainly all of my students really haven't experienced high levels of inflation. And, and, the, and the question is, I think the fundamental question is how persistent is this inflation going to be? And what would the rational viewpoint be? And here's, here's what one of the things we know from behavioral economics is that people tend to be simple extrapolators. And so um, basically, if they look at this a kind of a rising rate of inflation, they may well assume that it's just going to continue to rise or at a minimum stay at its current level uh, and perhaps ignore information that suggests that it's going to decline a bit. The rate of inflation is going to decline a bit. So we can see in, the, in what's called extrapolative expectations, basically the extrapolation kind of drawing a line, you know, where have things been going? We just draw a line through that and, and, and move forward that is as our expectation. Um, very often that doesn't work, that sometimes that extrapolation leads us to make rather bad decisions about uh, future variables, such as inflation. How do you see this playing out, the economics of the housing market? I'm not sure how much you've kind of looked into this, but it seems that I was like, the interest rate is up over 4%. There is super low inventory of housing, yet people are still willing to jump into a hot market like this. Can you explain yes. a little bit of that? Well, I can, I can try anyway. And so first of all, the, the obvious comparison would be kind of the late 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. when we got into a real housing bubble. And that led to what we call the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. And the ripples of which we're still we're still feeling, actually, I would say today. Um, it strikes me, though, a lot of people make that comparison. I don't think that's probably the proper comparison. One of the reasons that that was a bubble is that there were lots of people who simply um, couldn't make the payments on their on their house payments. And so that led to kind of a downward spiral. They had to sell their house, put the prices down and uh, and then other people tried to do the same. There was kind of a big selling um, spree, if you will. Um, and so it, it, at least at the, the data that I've seen recently, people are, are keeping up on their payments. Um, and that I, I, would, I would identify that as a key difference between then and now. Um, but try to explain this now is, is um, I think part of it might come back to this extrapolation story in the sense that housing prices, as we know, over the last two years over uh, the period of COVID have risen dramatically. Um, it's not been uniform across, uh, you know, metropolitan areas, for example, but boy, pretty much every place they've gone up at a faster rate than historically has been true. And I think a lot of people um, are trying to jump on that bandwagon, so to speak, before things get even further. So they're kind of extrapolating. They're going to assume housing prices are going to continue to increase at whatever rate in their local market it's been. And um, so I think that explains a lot of the buyer behavior. What you've put your finger on is a factor that may change that trend line, and that is the increase in interest rates. And you know, borrowing rates are now at high levels relative, at least to say the last ten years or right. so. Um, you know, again, from some long historical perspective, they don't look too bad, but nonetheless, there's that. And so there's a factor that I think maybe people are ignoring. Uh, are just avoiding in some way, avoiding thinking about that. Uh, and, and the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank of the United States, has made it clear that they intend to not only increase the interest rates that they control um, once, they've already done it once, but they're going to do maybe four or five more times over the next year. So I think that's a factor that may be underplayed in the market. So thinking about this too, in the sense that have you seen some data that talks about kind of generational differences and the approach to economics, like maybe current like millennial or Gen Z uh, information and how they approach economics behaviorally that may be different from past generations. 
Well, I think uh, I would not claim to be an expert in that area, first of all. Um, I think, first of all, one, one area where we're seeing that, and we can try to come back to housing, yeah. uh, but one, one area where we're definitely seeing that is in terms of um, the job market and kind of loyalty to jobs and the desire to have a really steady, uh, reliable kind of job, which was certainly the hallmark, of, especially of my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my, my parents' generation, people often work for one company their entire uh, work life. Um, and I think if you look at the younger generations, younger than me, which includes quite a few people, but it seems like the current job market is that people are willing to do more of the gig economy. Um, they don't, they're willing to, to move more often from job to job. It used to be that kind of job hopping on your resume looked bad. Mm-hmm. And now I think it's much more common. So I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's, uh, doesn't have, I, I, I don't think it has the stigma that it used to. Um, and so forth. So I think there's a clear generational difference there. I, I, I can't claim to know a lot about the, um, the housing difference, except that I do think that, that millennials are also a little bit more, I'm going to use the word transitory in their thinking, mm. that they, they may not think about buying a house that they want to keep for 20 years or something of that sort. Um, I think many of them are renting because especially if you're going to be changing jobs frequently, um, you, you might not want um, to own a house. It's a fairly, what we call illiquid asset, meaning it's hard to sell quickly at a fair price. Um, so I suspect uh, without having any hard data to support it, that there are some clear generational differences there. Are you seeing this with students at the university? Is there, is there any discussion you're having in classes or with students that make you, that you're just observing the differences that you just discussed? Yes, I think so. I think it'd be more pronounced with undergrads, than, and it's been a, um, a few years since I taught undergrads, but I teach a lot of master's students, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, a fair number of them do have kind of the steady job, but I also believe that a number of them would be happy to, to jump to another opportunity were it to come along, and we know that there are lots of increases in wages going on in the, in the market. Um, my son, uh, who's 20, almost 25, um, just got a very large raise. It was kind of anticipatory, um, or um, I don't know what you want to call it on the part of his employer. And he said, they basically said, you know, we don't want you looking elsewhere. So right. here's, don't, don't wait. We're not going to wait for you to bring a counter offer, an offer for us to counter uh, and so forth. So I think even among the slightly older um, students, that is my master's students, I do, I do see a bit of, a, a bit of this. Some, you know, again, I, I don't want to say loyalty, but it's some notion that I'm going to be working for a company for a long time. This is interesting to me. I think master students and such. What are students' attitudes or maybe conceptions of economics when they come to you that may be different than what is the reality of what is out there? I think the biggest thing that I would say, uh, since I'm a finance professor, the, the conversation always comes around to the stock market. Ah. And, and I think the biggest misconception is that it's, you know, with a little bit of cleverness and a little bit of work, you're going to be able to beat the market, that mm. you're going to be the next Warren Buffett and so forth. And, um, and that's the, the data simply don't bear that out. Um, and, and so, for I mean, Warren Buffett is such an outlier, it's such an extreme case that um, it's just not achievable. And, and you know, it, it basically be- happens because financial markets like the stock market or like the bond market, for that matter, are immensely competitive. I mean, when there are, when there are huge gains to be had to being correct, um, people compete very fiercely. And, but the competition kind of makes it harder and harder to succeed mm. in the sense of, of beating the market. So that it is, I, I, almost everybody kind of has this, it's almost unconscious, but this kind of notion that I, I think I can beat the market. <laughs> and, you know, they heard of someone who did this or they heard of something, some technique or some newsletter writer. And that is a very widespread misconception, which I think harms a lot of people because they end up trading too much. We, we can get off on this if you'd like, but sure. they end up trading too much. They tend up to not to have a sufficiently well-diversified portfolios. Um, I'm sure we could find people today who have essentially all their wealth in crypto. And that's just not a good idea. I'm sorry. Not great. Actually, I, 
when you were talking, I was like, I'm, I'm going to jump to this crypto because uh, I think it's, it's very relevant to our time. And, you know, I have several friends and stuff. That's all they want to talk about is crypto and this. And I'm more of like kind of I need to understand this. I mean, I think humans, we often don't understand stuff. We just jump into things without understanding the language, the clarifying aspect, what this means. And there's an element, like you said, to beat the market. We're seeing that also in a lot of places. It's like this, this going viral. I mean, I'll be the one to go viral. I'll be the one to get rich. I'll get the lottery ticket of the internet type of thing. Maybe speak to this a little bit of what you're seeing in this. Right, so so there, there are several things going on here. Um, first of all, um, crypto has has not been kind of in the public eye for for a long time. So we're dealing with a what as a statistician I would call a short sample period. But of course, there's the great stories there. You know, Bitcoin goes from you know maybe two hundred dollars to fifty thousand dollars over a relatively short period of time, and and um, there's a there's a very real thing called fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. FOMO, right? Fear of missing mm -hmm. out. And there are these stories about people who, you know, got in at 200 and they got out at 40,000 or 50,000 and so forth. And um, it looked easy. And I think uh, the thing that was missing from that picture was the risk, um, which, you know, this, this does bring to mind uh, one of the, the cognitive biases we have is called a survivorship bias. So the story is about the people who got in at 200 and out at 50 are kind of headline news. You know, these people are buying yachts or whatever, maybe buying them off of oligarchs or something of that mm. sort. Um, but, um, you know, there, there are plenty of people who got in at, at 50 and, you know, ended up selling at 35 because Bitcoin has itself been very variable. It's jumped up and down quite a bit. And so, and those stories are not as nearly publicized as, as much publicized. So what we're seeing is survivorship bias just means we tend to see the successful cases and we tend not to, you know, we tend not to see those people who are now kind of in the practicing, you know, would you like fries with that right. kind of, kind sure. of language. Right. And so, so, but, but, but it's, you know, it's, um, uh, captivating and maybe a good word, mm. almost addictive in a way to think that, oh, I don't have to put out much effort and I could make, in some cases, literally millions of dollars on a very small stake. Um, I think, again, the risk is understated. I think uh, we don't see the whole picture because of survivorship bias. I think there's also, um, there's also kind of this question of, you know, who do you listen to yes. um, and, and so forth? Because you're going to be listening, uh, many people are listening to the kind of the advocates for crypto, and it certainly has some advantages, um, but it's certainly um, untested. I mean, like I talk about a very short sample period. So it's it's kind of addictive, you know, it's a, in, alluring in a way. Yes. Um, it's easy to do. I mean, it's a very human thing to be caught up in those emotions, um, but that doesn't make it particularly wise. What's the, so have, have you thought about kind of the long-term viability of cryptocurrency and some, is, is it something that is viable for humans for the long-term? Will it become kind of the dominant aspect of things? That's a, that's a good question. And um, uh, my, my good friend, Scott Christensen, whom you've had on several mm -hmm. podcasts, and I would refer your listeners to those podcasts, um, is probably more of an, if it was not certainly, certainly more of an expert <laughs> on crypto than I. I, I think for it to be a, a permanent kind of thing outside the realm of speculation, it needs to have the qualities of money and, and um, store of value, medium of exchange would right. be the economics textbook kinds of things. And it lacks both of those at the, at the moment. Um, Bitcoin uh, is not, you can't walk into many stores and buy stuff with, uh, uh, with uh, Bitcoin or really any of the other cryptocurrencies, although we might come back to stable coins in just a minute. But, um, and it's, it's not a particularly a store of value. If it can go from 50 to 35 in the course right. of a week, um, it's not much of a store of value. So until uh, any one of the cryptos, and of course there are thousands out there, yeah. literally thousands out there, until they have the characteristics of being widely accepted and fairly stable in value, I, I think they're just going to remain kind of like meme stocks, you know, in the realm yeah. of uh, subject to kind of weird emotional runs by people and, and the risks that come with that. Yeah, I mean, especially something where it's so volatile 
And that one may be one thing one day and later the next day, a huge 50% drop in value. How do you shop with that? How do you uh, <laughs> like? <laughs> well, the answer is you don't, even though I believe, I believe it's El Salvador's, I think it's El Salvador's mm -hmm. made it legal uh, tender, but it's not being used for, 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 for very good reasons. So it's not. So right now it's just, uh, you know, let's call it a speculation or an ultra speculation. Right. And it's good going to have to change you know someone is going to some one cryptocurrency is going to have to change its characteristics now there are uh there are things called stable coins which are basically tied one is tied to the u.s dollar and it's really supposed to be kind of the equivalent of roughly of an electronic u.s dollar mm. um the company that started that maybe doesn't have the the uh backing that they that the, the amount of uh securities and money behind the stable coin. So there's there's a little bit of risk there about that company. Uh, the Fed, again, our central bank here in the United States is has started thinking about whether there should be an electronic US dollar. You know, that's not what people think of when we think of crypto, but that could be something that could well uh, last into the future or start and, and continue on into the indefinite future. Makes a lot of sense. Let's turn our attention to retirement. Which okay. I think is a... I, I love talking about retirement. I, it's, it's very interesting, but from an economist's perspective, where are we in terms of retirement and uh, social security? Okay, so let's take those uh, kind of separately. So in terms of retirement, the, the overall numbers are a little discouraging. Mm. A, lot of, a lot of people, so I'm a baby boomer. The baby boomers are between, were born between 46 and 64, an easy mnemonic since you re just reversed <laughs> right, the, right. The, letter, the numbers. Um, <laughs> And I'm kind of smack in the middle of that. About 10,000 baby boomers retire every day, something of that sort. It's wow. a huge, you know, it's the rabbit in the snake kind of, or, you know, the alligator in the snake, maybe, um, sort of thing. Um, and a lot of those, a lot, a lot of people, I think the first misconception, and we'll get to Social Security in a minute, but the first misconception is that Social Security is intended to be kind of enough to support you in retirement. And people at least have been behaving that way in the sense that there are a fair number of people that have very, very low levels of savings. And right. I think we've all seen these casual statistics. Some of them stretch my imagination, but you know, people can't put together $500 for an emergency right. repair or something of that this, sort. Yeah. Um, and even if those numbers are not quite right, it, it, I think there's a lot of truth in those. Mm. And so we have a lot of people, you can look at averages, but the problem is there are also a few people that have saved a great number, a great amount of money. And so the average is not really what we want to look at there. What we want to look at is a more typical case. And the more typical case is, is not necessarily encouraging. And until the pandemic, people were working longer because they were discovering that, that they didn't have the savings at least that would allow them to live in, in the manner to which they expected to live. Mm -hmm. um, now, since the pandemic, um, uh, first of all, a lot of people lost their jobs. And you know, once you're out of the labor force, it's harder to get back into the labor right. force. Uh, your skills may deteriorate, or it may simply be the perception of employers that you're kind of rusty or something of that sort. Um, of course, the economy is changing. I, we, we, maybe we can pick that up later, but yeah. you know, economy is changing the set of skills we need to succeed. So if you're a baby boomer, maybe you just, you don't have the skills, uh, maybe tech, tech skills to, to succeed. So in terms of where we stand as a country, kind of as a whole, I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic that the level of savings are not, um, not where I say where they should be, uh, should in the sense of where people would feel comfortable retiring and, and mm. have a comfortable financial life. Um, Social Security is an interesting question. You, you know, you hear stories on both sides about whether it's going to run out of money, mm -hmm. when it's going to run out of money and so forth. Um, I think for the next five or 10 years, that's not a major concern. And, and, the, and the reason is that uh, the reality that I just described is well known to politicians. And if you cut Social Security, you're going to have a lot of angry people, maybe with canes and walkers, but, you know, <laughs> out there on, right. you know, on their doorstep step um, screaming because that that was that that is in fact for many people their main source of income right um which of course is uh social security is inflation adjusted but there's a lag in that and so a lot of people on social who rely on social security you know find their purchasing power reduced over the course of the year before they get kind of the bump 
uh, with the COLA, the cost of living adjustment, as it were. So um, my concerns, I, I think, now this is my reading of the political scene, um, but you know, uh, we know that Social Security is funded anybody, almost everybody, not everybody, but most everybody right. look at your paycheck and you'll see that, that there is a, a, a takeout for, for Social Security. So it's being funded by people in the workforce or people who are now out of the workforce. There are some other kinds of plans, disability, but I wanna set those aside. Um, and, but of course those numbers are working, you know, with all the baby boomers retiring and the rabbit and the snake, you know, the ratio of, of older people who are soon to be retired if they're not already retired to, to younger people who are still in the workforce is, is not advantageous. So it may well be that, that um, the politicians, uh, particularly Congress uh, working with the president are gonna have to find additional sources of funding. But I, I, my, my forecast would be that they're not gonna cut it uh, they may find ways to reduce the inflation adjustment. Mm -hmm. You know, they can, you can choose different inflation measures and maybe one doesn't rise quite as fast as others. We could see some game playing along those lines. Um, but I think social security is, is fine at least for five or 10 years um, because there'll be workarounds. Right. But is there a change in how people are viewing retirement uh, through the generations? It seems like there's, the more I read about it, is and maybe these are playing to a certain side of things, but that maybe less people are are retiring. Maybe just there we're seeing people maybe want to want to work longer versus actually retiring and doing playing golf or whatever. You yeah. know, like yeah, whatever. Yeah, sit in. A, is there a I mean, cultural shift in that retirement, the mindset of retirement for people, not just the economics, but the actual change in culture? Yeah, I think there are several things that might impinge on uh, or might contribute to an answer to that. And one is that um, I think a lot of people and I think this is more this is a, this is a broad generalization. It doesn't right. apply. But I think this applies more to men than women. And that is that men tend to have a lot of their identity caught up in their job. And now I think this is increasingly true for women because the last 20 or 30 years we've seen increasing participation in the workforce by women. Um, but, and, and so, um, you know, I think what happens to a lot of people um, when they retire is they kind of lose their self, their sense of self-identity. Um, right. I certainly saw this with my, with my father. And, um, and, and, that, and, and that's, a, that's a problem from a mental health standpoint. And it is also a spur to go back to work, kind of as you were saying, it's a spur to go back to work at least part-time. And, you know, having, if, if you work to kind of the eight to five, I know the Dolly Parton song was nine to five. <laughs> that, that apparently doesn't include a lunch break. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you've been working the eight to five kind of thing for, you know, 40 years, you know, maybe you don't want to go back to that. But maybe you find, well, partly for economic reasons, but partly like, you know, have some sense of, of con contributing. Um, you want to maybe go back and work part time. And so I do see um, in, in my generation, I do see a, lo a lot of that. Um, again, I'll just broadly label myself a baby boomer. I think a lot of people are, you know, may take a year or two off. They find it unrewarding playing golf or eating yeah. bonbons or whatever they're doing is just not turned out to be as much fun as they thought. And so they go look for something meaningful. Now it doesn't have to be paying. That could be governed by the economics of the situation. Right. There's lots of volunteering going on, I think. Um, I've already kind of started, I'm not quite retired yet, although I'm getting close and I've already started some volunteering activities um, that can mean to give meaning to one's life. So I think the, I think maybe one, you know, for those people who are listening, who are approaching retirement, I would encourage them to think a lot about what they want to do in retirement. It doesn't have to be written in stone. It's not a, it's not a plan that can never be changed, but the, the phrase don't, don't retire from something retire to something, mm. I think really helps with the mindset on that. So um, now, you know, just to switch generations entirely, there's a, I don't know what percentage, but there's a non-trivial percentage of very young people for these so-called FIRE people. So uh, FIRE stands for, uh-oh, the RE is retire early. Now I've forgotten the <laughs> FI. Anyway, these are the people who are kind of doing the rice and beans, living minimally. They're saving 50, 60% of their paycheck, right? So they can retire when they're 35. Ah. Um, financial independence, retire early, something like that. I think that's yeah. right. 
Okay. Um, it, or something very close to that. And so now that's not a majority, I would say, of millennials yeah. or, uh, and, and so forth, but it's an interesting phenomenon. I think those people are going to be kind of uh, stumped when they retire at 35 and they're, they're going to be financially okay. I mean, you can do those numbers, um, but then like, okay, now what are you going to do for the next 60 years yeah. is, uh, or even next year, but you know, in the next 60 <laughs> years. So uh, that's another kind of subset of the population that's had a change in attitude towards, towards retirement as well. It was interesting. I used to run a very high-end private uh, fitness club in Las Vegas for over a decade. I mean, extreme levels of wealth. And we had a lot of residents who were retired in their 30s and they were bored out of their mind and <laughs> would come to the club and talk to us for hours and hours. And I think this humans crave this pack animal mentality. And like, you think it sounds good to do nothing and kind of, you know, but it, I don't think it works for most people. I think that you're not built for that. Some people maybe you're like, oh, I'm fine with it. You know, like, like my dad retired from the military after like 28 years and he's fine with not doing much because his life was full of stress constantly throughout mm -hmm. the time. And he was like, I'm glad I get to do nothing. Finally, you know, <laughs> like, you yeah, know, yeah. Some people well, I, maybe, but I don't know. I think that's the majority of people. You know? I fully agree with you. That is not the majority of people. I think uh, a majority of people may think they're that type. And then <laughs> one, year, one year into retirement, they discover, you know, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, it is true. People, people are very much pack animals. I mean, we're, we're social creatures. Um, you know, if you think about kind of uh, human evolution, we may have started in relatively small tribes where the social connections were extremely important. I mean, important to survival Yes. and, and, and so forth. And, you know, as mammals, we, we uh, create, we crave touch even. Yes. So there's a the physical dimension to this as well. And so, um, yeah, that, that, you know, I don't know what, you know, you win the lottery at 35 or you've been saving 70% of your <laughs> paycheck until you're 35. And then, and then what do you do? I hope they're all giving that some thought because uh, I do think your father is probably in the minority Completely. of people. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, given his circumstances, that's certainly understandable given, given his yeah. military career. I mean, if you're getting up at 3 a.m. every day and then you're serving in wars, deployment, it's just a constant wheel of stress. And for him, he seems completely happy to like watch Netflix and relax and write. I'm like, I totally get it. Like it's, you know, it's, it's yeah, not well, like any other, it's a very different job. That yeah, you, yeah. You know. Well, and there's a very real sense in which he deserves this. Right. Um, on the other hand, it, would, it wouldn't surprise me that, if, you know, a couple of years from now, he kind of starts, you know, like, hmm, okay, now what can I do? That's you true. know, yeah. it might use his military training or it might just be something brand new. Right. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if that happened. It's not really a forecast, but right. it wouldn't surprise me if it happened as well. So what do you, so you had mentioned about kind of like, you know, in terms of retirement, we talked a little about that in terms of this generation, I keep hearing about that Gen Z, you know, millennials uh, don't save money. They're not great at saving money and that this could be a big problem because people actually won't be able to retire. At this at this pace, are you seeing that? Is the data bear that out? What are you seeing? Yeah, I think the data are largely supportive of that. Um, mm -hmm. I think you know it, it's kind of a mixed bag because, in some sense, um, I think again this is a broad generalization. Mm -hmm. You know, when you talk about it, any kind of generation, it's sure. a, there are always exceptions uh, to that. But you know, I think in some sense, um, maybe they're uh, living a little bit more in the present, which I think mm -hmm. is. I mean, this is one of the one of life's challenges, right? Is how much do we live in the present? How much do we worry about and save for the future? Right. You know, what sacrifices do we make in the present to ensure a future, which is of course uncertain in pretty much every dimension. We could all get, you know, hit by the proverbial bus tomorrow sure. um, and so forth. And, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people maybe from my generation maybe sacrificed a little too much. I think this is true of my parents' generation, especially. Yeah. Looking at my parents and, and my in-laws, um, they they saved and saved and saved, and and then when it got to to their retirement years, two things were at work. One is some of the things they could have spent money on were no longer feasible, like international travel because right. of their age. Right. And the other thing is when you spend your whole life being very frugal, it's almost impossible to break that habit. 
<laughs> so, so this, I mean, I don't have any answers here, but you know, one thing we, I think we can all reflect on is like, okay, how much of the present and how much of the future and, and what are those trade-offs here? So in, in the extent, you know, the positive side of what you're describing of not saving enough is that people are not overly focused on the future and maybe enjoying the present. Not, I don't mean necessarily hedonistically, but they're sure. kind of living in the present moment more. Um, but yes, there are financial consequences down the road. Um, and, it, you know, one of the things as a finance professor, I'm going to go down this route, mm -hmm. is, you know, one of the things, if you have um, a 30 or 40 year horizon until you retire, um, you can use what's called the, the power of compound interest, which many of your uh, listeners have probably heard of. But it basically means if you start saving early, you don't have to save great wads of money to be fairly comfortable when you're say 65, it, you yeah. know, the, the social security full retirement keeps getting up in time. So it might be 70 for a lot of the younger generation. Yeah. Um, but this is a tool you don't, you don't have to, you know, make great sacrifices in the present to be reasonably assured of having some financial stability, financial comfort, uh, when you retire, when you retire at a conventional age, like yeah. 65, not 35, right? And so compound interest, Albert Einstein was alleged to have said, you know, it's the eighth wonder of the world. It's hard, <laughs> to, it's hard to find him quoted directly. It's like, you know, <clears throat> it's kind of like many clever sayings or either Winston Churchill or Mark Twain. And the two of them only said about half of what was ever yeah. attributed to them. But, but anyway, the, the point is, it is, it is um, kind of a, a not fully appreciated that power of compound interest is, is not fully appreciated. And so, you know, even you can live well in the present and still set aside enough to, uh, assuming you're making some money, uh, to have a reasonably comfortable uh, retirement. Yeah. So I think that's one lesson for, for people who are relatively young who have those horizons. If you, you know, if you're planning to retire in three or four years and you haven't saved well, there's just not that much. I mean, you can, you know, you can start saving like crazy. <laughs> um, but you know, there's just, you know, your past behaviors have, have put you in that position and there's not a lot you can do. Um, we've talked about working beyond the age where you mm -hmm. expect to retire. Um, can't recommend lottery tickets. I think you'd mentioned <laughs> winning the lottery. Can't recommend that. That's yeah. a, that's a, that's a bad idea. So, um, anyway, so there's, there's a, there's a lot of things going on there. The other, the other side of compound interest, um, that I'll mention is that, uh, is the use of debt. Mm. And, and the problem is that debt also compounds if you don't pay it off reasonably quickly. And so um, you can wind up at retirement with, with a fair amount of debt if you've not been taking care of that as well, especially credit card debt where the interest yeah. rates are you know, 16, 17, 18% or more. Um, and so that's also the power of compound interest, but working against you <laughs> right. uh, when, when you're talking about borrowing as opposed to working for you when you're talking about saving. Most definitely. I definitely am in the group of uh, starting very early. My parents were very insisted upon that with it. And financial advisement was a big part of my, I'm 43 now. I still have a lot of time to work mm -hmm. and I, yeah, compound interest. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you don't have to do no. much. You actually don't even have to do much. You know? No, that's, <laughs> that's about the, that's the, that's the thing. And, 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 uh, so you're right. You know, good for your parents, first of all, you know, to have uh, brought you up that way. I think, uh, in general, financial literacy in the United States is at a very low level. Correct. Um, people do not understand such simple concepts as as um, compound interest. I mean, it doesn't seem simple at first. If you get the right explanation, it's, yeah, it's it's simple enough. You know, kind of interest on the interest, and it grows over time. And you can see these graphs of. You know, it's called exponential growth. It's not just right. a line. It, you know, it's a steep, like the upper part of a roller coaster kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And and that works to your advantage again when you're saving. So, um, so you know, your parents helped out. Uh, you know, the question of financial literacy in the United States is one that probably needs to be addressed. I'm not yes. sure at what uh, what level. You know, local school board, state, federal, maybe all all of those. Um, because I think I think. Um, there's a lot of work to be done in that area. Most definitely. And I want to, but I also want to say, like, I know we had, I think last year we had the first dip in life expectancy in a while mm -hmm. in the U.S., but in general, life expectancy seems to be climbing in general and broadly. 
How does that mesh with retirement? If humans start living considerably longer in the future, but retirement is generally considered to be in this age range of your mid-60s type of thing, how does that work out? <laughs> Well, um, not for the, not really well, I guess. Yeah, um, it is. This is kind of, it's kind of a short answer, but no, but you know, your point is is a good one. First of all, I think you characterized the decline during the uh, during the pandemic as a blip, and I think it probably is. It just yeah. relates to the pandemic, right. uh, and, and and affiliated things. People were not going to the doctor to get regular right. checkups and things. And it wasn't just COVID, but uh, a lot of things because of COVID. Um, and so I think I think it is a more rational. I, um, to kind of adjust one's um, forecast of how uh, how long one's going to live, and there are there are um, actuarial tables that say, given your age, um, how long you expected to live, and you can find refinements, you know, based on your health. Let's say your BMI, your body mass sure. index, and other sorts of things. You can get an estimate about how long um, you're going to live. But I think I think. Um, you know, I do think what we've seen over time is the so-called full benefits um, age for Social Security has risen over time, right. reflecting that. You know, the, the 65, I think it was originally, came from a time when fewer than half the people even lived to be 65. That's amazing. I mean, I mean, it was picked because it's like <laughs> we don't we don't have to pay half of these people. Right, right. Because they're going to die before they get there, right? And now the life expectancy is, well, it's of course it's lower for men than women. And I don't have the numbers, but it's yeah. in the seventies, right. um, especially for children being born today. Right. Um, and, and so, um, so social security is kind of, you know, doing this with a lag, but I do think this is maybe part of the financial literacy or illiteracy that we're yeah. talking about. People need to think, you know, yeah, social security will let me retire as early as 62. And there may be reasons, health reasons or whatever. Right. Uh, maybe you need to retire to, to care for someone that needs your full-time care. I'm not saying that's always a bad idea, but financially, it, it really, there's quite a penalty for that. Right. And I think all of us need to have some expectation that under the current scheme, that's a qualification, but under the current scheme, if you can postpone taking Social Security until you're 70, the uh, the returns on that so to speak are, are reasonable are right. pretty high they are the, yeah. they cite eight percent a year which is that's a lot better than you're making in your there's <laughs> nothing account. to that's sneeze about sure. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly you know and so you know and again the reason maybe not to do that if you're not in ill health and you don't think you're going to live to be much beyond 70 then don't wait till 70 um but one way to think about that and i would just offer this uh, this perspective up to your listeners is you know if you can afford to wait in a way, it's a form of longevity insurance, right. because what we're first of all, it's inflation adjusted, as I said, with a lag, but it's inflation adjusted, and lasts as long as you do. And and um, you know, the concern that many people have is, am I going to outlive my savings? Mm -hmm. And I have said that Social Security is not probably enough by itself, but you know, if you can wait, it's up there at that elevated level. Um, and it again, it'll last as long as as you do. So it's a kind of longevity insurance like if you happen to live to be 105 you'll still being you'll still get being paid by social security right wow uh, it's, it's amazing how we look this also i think kind of also in the sense is like i think sometimes people have trouble with financial conversations and retirement because it also showcases that you're going to die one day on some level and yes. humans have problems confronting death and the reality of it because if you're a young person, you don't even care about that at this point. You're like, ah, I mean, it seems so far away, but the reality is, is that it's a hundred percent death rate. So yep. you have to think about it at some point and have a discussion about it. You know? Oh, I, I could not agree more. And, and in fact, um, I think thinking about your death, while it sounds morbid, I mean, if you think about it a lot every day, <laughs> then you got a problem. You got a problem. But, yeah. But, you know, sitting down periodically to confront it, is um, is I think I think it can substantially enhance the quality of your life because it 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 calls into focus the decisions you're making now mm -hmm. and how they might impinge on your life and you know I think there are lots of um, you know Stephen Covey in his book suggests yeah. what you know called the eulogy kind of idea what do you want people to be saying about you at your funeral um, yeah it does make people uncomfortable um, I've done some reading and studying in Buddhism. And boy, you know, the, the phrase, everything is impermanent, you right. know, 
permeates Buddhism, yeah. right? And, and including right. your life is impermanent. And but I do think as as a lot of people do, you're exactly right. A lot of people shy away from that. And I think there are huge benefits to have to confronting your death and then say, okay, what does that mean for me? You know, and the type of life I would like to lead, the decisions I'm making now, how I think about now versus the future, and so on and so forth. I, th I think that's hugely important. I think it's a great point. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, we shy away from things that we just, like we know are inevitable. We just want to push them under the rug. Yeah. And, and money and the concept of money too. money conversation is also uncomfortable for a lot of people, whether it be salary, people comparing what do they have versus what do I have? You know, I think I think you think about if you live in a neighborhood and all your neighbors are around you, a lot of people, you know, it's human nature you think, well, I wonder how how well they're doing over there. You know, oh, it's, there's it becomes this weird thing, money and talk of money in relationship to comparison of finances. Well, there's, there's, that is, um, that's a wide open topic, but yeah. first of all, let me say you're absolutely right. And, and, um, you know, there are studies that show that the affluence of your neighbors affects your own spending habits. Oh and a goodness. lot of this probably happens unconsciously. That's mm. even the worst part of it. It's not, you know, that they just pull up in their new you know, <laughs> Jaguar or Ferrari and suddenly, you know, your Lexus isn't looking so good kind of thing. <laughs> right. And, you know, and so first of all, you, you've just given a prescription that is, is uh, very, very useful. And that is be care, be careful who you compare yourself to, because with, with only one exception, there's always someone richer than you, yeah, for example, right. right? I mean, there's <laughs> probably some one person richest in the world, whoever it yeah, may right. be. Um, but the point is there's always someone richer than you. And, um, you know, I, I, in my case, maybe not in yours, it, but in my case, I know there's someone fitter than I am, right? I mean, I play a lot of tennis, but, <laughs> right. and so forth. So you have to be careful about comparisons because um, they do influence the decision you make. And so you think, well, I, I think maybe I need a Beamer to, you know, fit in this neighborhood <laughs> when the Lexus is perfectly fine, you right. know, or just a Toyota is just fine. Right. Um, so that whole comparison thing and, and, and related to that, uh, very similar to that is something called the hedonic treadmill, which is a nice phrase, but yeah. it basically means that when we acquire things, and I think pretty much all of us have had this experience, when we acquire things, we have this temporary blip in our kind of happy, I'm assuming it's a good thing, right. like uh, a, a BMW, okay, that we get this temporary blip in our happiness, but you know, we, we soon acclimate to it, and pretty soon it's just a car, right? right. And, and, and yet, you know, boy, there's, you know, some number of dollars that we didn't really need to spend. Mm. And, uh, but then the, so, so the treadmill is then, okay, now I need to do something else to get happy again. So if it's not that I need to take a cruise or I need to put a swimming pool in my backyard or whatever it is. And so we're all, you know, and we get, we get a temporary bump in our happiness from a cruise or a swimming pool in the backyard, but pretty soon, in fact, the swimming pool in the backyard can be like, oh my God, I gotta go clean all the leaves out <laughs> exactly. kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so the hedonic treadmill says that if you don't pay attention, you, you're kind of constantly acquiring, you're on this treadmill and you're not really getting anywhere in terms of happiness, but you're working really hard because, yeah. you, you know, you're having to get the money to buy the, the BMW, then the, the swimming pool, then the, then the cruise and so forth. And you're really overall not much happier in the long run. Um, so, you know, the comparison and this notion that my, especially my material acquisitions are going to have a temporary effect. Whereas going back to our earlier conversation, my social connections yes. can have a, a much more lasting effect on my happiness. And in fact, uh, for people thinking about retiring, it's clear that people that have with strong social connections are happier, they're healthier, they, they live longer, maybe tied to their health. Anyway, there's everything to be said. Social isolation is, is extremely harmful to mental and yes. physical health. Yes. I mean, well said. I mean, it's even funny, it even goes to like, well, we moved here like four years ago to Washington state from Las Vegas. And, and you know, it's a zero scape place. You don't mow lawns in Vegas generally and stuff. We right. got here, I have this big lawn, big backyard, whole thing. And my neighbor is like always cutting his lawn. Like, and it looks immaculate. And I said, I have to cut it as much as he does. Cause I don't want our lawn to look bad. Like, right. But if he wasn't there, maybe he didn't cut it. Maybe I wouldn't cut it as much. So I recognize that I'm being influenced by the kind of aesthetics of not one of my neighbors, great job of keeping up their yard. 
in a sense, yeah. is keeping up with the Joneses in a sense, you know. So that's the that's that kind of comparison thing again. Exactly. Yeah. Another phrase for that. And you know, you might want to ask yourself, you know, I'm not a therapist and I don't play one on TV <laughs> either, but you know, you might want to ask like, so what if my yard doesn't look quite as good right. as my neighbor's, you know? <laughs> um, kind of related to that. And I'm not saying you know it is or is not in sure. your budget, but I, I had a colleague who when the when in the spring came, he would go mow his yard once to remind himself how much he hated it and therefore <laughs> how much it was worth hiring someone to do it for him. <laughs> it was he always did it once a year. And he go, okay, yep, it's worth paying this, you know, this kid down the street to mow my yard. That is so, funny. I have a very yeah. different outlook. Like, even though my neighbor is doing it, I like mowing the lawn. Oh, but it's well, more of a fitness aspect to it. So I don't even have like the container that holds, you know, when you cut it and all the grass clippings mm -hmm. go into it. I right. like to rake it up because it's a part of like informal exercise for me. Oh, for no, this. that's. I, I look at it as a physical aspect and not like, oh, I hate this type of thing, you know? No, 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 no. That's, I mean, that's great. And certainly something mowing the lawn can be almost meditative. Yeah. Oh my sense, gosh. You know, yes. you know, if you kind of right in that moment and you mm -hmm. just kind of focused on that, yeah. I mean, this is, um, you know, we've, we all have heard about mindfulness anyway, yes. if you're kind of mindful in that, um, you know, the classic example is washing dishes, but there's no reason why <laughs> you know, mowing a lawn can't be a mindful activity where you're just kind of in that. And um, that's great. And then in, in your case, you got the physical uh, benefits of, of doing that as well. And, yeah. and you value those. I, guess. I value everybody. That. Yeah. yeah. I think because I yeah. value it. It's like, oh, this is another extension of my education and my lifestyle. Yeah. Versus like sometimes, you know, if you're like, hey, I, I hate this and you hire somebody, it's like, okay, you're not going to do it. You hire somebody. But like in my background, I'm thinking you're just taking more activity out of your life. That's what my education's telling me that, you know, yeah. but so it's a different mindset, you know, it's, it's a different, different mindset. It's different neither mindset. one's right or wrong. It's right. Just, it's just, uh, but different. they are different. They They're are very different, different for that. Absolutely. But John, man, I tell you what, uh, thank you so much for giving me some of your valuable time, a currency that no human can afford <laughs> to buy back, which is time. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it has, it has been a great pleasure. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. I've learned quite a bit. And I, I know the audience uh, is certainly, well, I've learned quite a bit. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Likewise. Thanks so much, Terry. Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower. Every note. Or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew. Cruising. You can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at AmFam.com. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.